This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hello, everyone. So nice to have you with us. We love Hollywood. Hollywood loves Hollywood. Many directors love to make films about Hollywood's splendor, excesses, vices, follies, and foibles. So on this episode, in anticipation of Damien Chazelle's new movie, Babylon, we're going to talk about this very interesting, a bit navel-gazing subgenre, Hollywood movies about Hollywood. And it's just a love fest here because I'm so happy to have such a talented film critic with me to talk about this. Zoe Rose Bryant, who writes for Next Best Picture, Awards Watch, does a ton of podcasts with them, Screen Rant, has a new YouTube channel, you name it. Zoe, thank you so much and welcome. Thank you so much for having me, especially about a topic that I adore so much and I'm so excited to talk about. Hooray for Hollywood, right? <laughs> I can't wait to get into this with you. We're going to talk about some of our favorite films. To be clear, we're not going to talk about that other little subgenre, the love letter to Hollywood, the cinema paradiso style directors taking us back to when cinema changed their lives. You know, like Spielberg's Fablemans, Mendes' Empire of Light, Kenneth Branagh did it in Belfast. So many have done it, right? That's something else, right? Yeah, I would say this is more about the making movies side of things, which is definitely what's being talked about more this year. So There's a lot of both at the moment. Let's start with Babylon. Um, it's sort of the last of the unseen major awards contenders this season. Those that saw it on the first screenings that are out, reactions are wild. What is this? Tell us a little bit about this movie. So it is the story of essentially Hollywood shifting from the silent films to the talkies and all the chaos that that caused for a lot of the silent film actors and also directors and producers who had to adapt to a whole new way of making movies. Um, and it follows a collection of characters in 1920s Hollywood who are all struggling to adapt from Brad Pitt to Margot Robbie and then all told through the eyes of an assistant played by Diego Calva. Looks to be a lot of fun, um, a lot of insanity too, as a lot of these reactions have implied. Um, and it is definitely something that's been hard to make sense of from an awards perspective, because for as many reviews really admire Damien Chazelle's ambition and his vibrant vision of all this chaos, um, there are a lot of people who think it's overindulgent or too long at three hours and that he didn't need this much time to tell this story or that he's not the right director to take on this material. But at the end of the day, I'm still confident that this cast and this crew will be received well by the industry, especially since I think this is a story that hits close to home for them. And they also just have so much respect for everybody involved. So I still think it's still firmly in the race. And I'm really excited to see it for myself because even the bad reactions make me want to witness everything that they're talking about. Oh, this this so, is right down my alley. I'm so looking forward yeah. to it. Someone wrote about, again, you mentioned that Damien Chazelle, who's still only, he's like under 30 still, right? Isn't he? I think he's he, like, I think he might be over now, but he is, is he yeah, now? He's like the, okay, he's yeah. just so young. But someone called it a Scorsese Coke film by a squeaky clean director. I thought that was funny. <laughs> I mean, yeah. apparently it's a lot of bacchanalia, lots of parties, lots of incredible scenes with elephants and drugs and 
everything. And he himself said, talking about what we were mentioning before about the um, love letter to Hollywood, he called it himself a poisoned pen letter to Hollywood, but a love letter to cinema. Um, but besides Chazelle, there's a big batch of Hollywood on Hollywood. Just lately, we have Fincher's Mank and, of course, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What would you say is the draw for directors to go and look back at Hollywood? I think the theme with a lot of these directors who are tackling this material is that they've aged. And I think they're getting more nostalgic about the art that made them love art. And thus they want to give back to that art in a way and also honor what came before. And I think we've also seen a resurgence in this subgenre, as we were saying earlier, especially during COVID and post-COVID, because I think that made us realize how strong our attachment to movie theaters and movie making overall right. was and how disappointing it would be if that went away entirely because of how much it provides us, you know, emotionally, spiritually, and how nourishing an experience that is. So there's that motivation to really represent it in all its magic and majesty. Um, and I think that's what I'm really excited to see most with Babylon in particular, because like you said, even though he acknowledged that it kind of tackles some of the seedier sides of the industry, um, there is that love for what cinema and art can do that trumps all. And I think that that's been a through line through all these films recently. And everybody just also loves nostalgia. Everyone loves to revisit their childhood and when things were so much easier, especially as the world gets crazier and crazier every single day. So I think that's another appeal with stories like this. And these three that we're talking about, the, they have so, they're such nerds. I mean, they have such mm -hmm. knowledge, pre-code Hollywood. Tarantino knows every detail about every Sergio Leone movie, you know, grain of sand in any desert he's filmed. Yeah. And that era, the pre-code era, is just so incredibly interesting. The whole studio system and the concept of how movie stars was coming out. And so so I understand that one is drawn to that period, which is not the same period as, as Tarantino's movie, of course. But I mean, that's another sort of knowledge yeah. that he has there. Brad Pitt is in a couple of these movies. He's both in Tarantino's, for which he won his Oscar, and he's in Chazelle's movie. He has, he seems a bit like Teflon because he has some issues sort of behind the scenes. That's sort of a side note, but. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm really, I'm really interested to see how the industry kind of handles that aspect of his campaign because it is something that I think is being talked about more in the journalism world right now and sometimes in tabloid culture and I don't think the industry has really chosen to engage with it yet I think because they do have such massive respect for both him and his ex-wife Angelina Jolie and I think they've seen it more as a family matter and not wanted to get into it but I think there will be pieces that'll come out especially later this year and into next as Babylon is a greater presence in the award season and I do think you know he might be asked to answer for certain things even if it does feel invasive to some just because it is this kind of cloud that's looming over the campaign at the moment and in particular because it's a movie about Hollywood and stars it's, yeah. it's not a hard leap <laughs> to ask about yeah. you know what Hollywood does to people in terms of stardom yeah especially because Babylon does engage with kind of the darker side of things like we were saying earlier and, you know that's a very sad reality of the industry today and I think there are just a lot of powerful men whose behavior has kind of gone unchecked and unaccounted for and I think 
this news breaking at this time is probably the worst thing for him because he it is in the middle of that movement and i don't think it'll tank babylon or anything overall i think there's so much more to yeah the movie that'll stand on its own but yeah i think he could definitely (laughs) kind of face some treacherous waters come 2023 but we'll see and before we move on chazelle we were saying that this is his absolute biggest movies in terms a movie in terms of budget really gave him total freedom it seems like Mm -hmm. to do something that seems quite divisive what would you say about him as a director oh i i love damien giselle yeah i i have kind of grown up watching you know his career take off because i was in i think late middle school early high school and whiplash came out and i remember watching that and you know it was like a very indie film but still incredibly yeah incredibly paced incredibly edited it was just so energetic and invigorating and i think he managed to make this small scale story just as intense as anything we're hearing from babylon which was really speaking to his directorial abilities even very early on in his career and i don't believe that was his first film. I think he might have done one thing before yeah, he did that. I think it... something on the bench. I haven't seen so, it. But yeah, I yeah. I have not either. But yeah, I think you're right. I, that is mm-hmm. the movie. Um, and then he went straight to La La Land, which was another kind of love le- love letter to cinema um, and artists and dreamers. But I think it's interesting to see how that film was an honest but also kind of rosier idea of fame and chasing your dreams in the industry, whereas Babylon kind of seems to be the inverse of that and I think that's I think that's a unique way to kind of take his career because a lot of people who didn't like La La Land were more critical of that and Babylon kind of does engage with the things that La La Land kind of glossed over for some and yeah so I, I like when a director kind of learns from what his dissenters were saying early on and kind of seeks to have a conversation with them directly and you know admit when there were other things that he might have like skipped over and that's what I think I'm most excited to see in Babylon because there's just so much more to you know being like Margot Robbie like her character's an aspiring starlet like there's a lot more that I think we could have explored in La La Land that we're finally getting to here and that's really mature of him I think as a filmmaker yeah true I really liked First Man I know a lot of people mm-hmm. didn't but I thought yeah. it was very moving and um, I just think it's so interesting how he can maneuver in genre too yeah and I think First Man is oddly enough maybe his smallest movie since his first it's like Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, I think is the title. Yes, that was it. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah, there we go. And I think First Man was like definitely his smallest and not in scale, but emotionally and very introspective. And so it's really fascinating to see him go from that straight to Babylon, which is like everybody's at 11. It's so big. There's like boisterous parties every single scene, it seems. And I think, I do think First Man unfairly got tagged with some criticisms because it was so introspective, which I agree with you. I actually think made the film stronger for the story it was telling. He's so solid at is really like grasping the tone of the project and adapting Mm -hmm. his style accordingly. So like you weren't going to have this kind of intensity in First Man because that's not who Neil Armstrong was and that's not what the story is, but it totally fits what he's trying to do with Babylon. So. So let's move on to some of our favorites. I can't believe I suggested to you when we were talking, yes, let's pick five movies. And it's like an impossible task when I started <laughs> to really look into this. So we'll probably talk about a lot more films. Um, why don't you begin with with one some of your favorite in this Hollywood on Hollywood genre? 
okay, I think I would have to go with Singing in the Rain as like the classic. It's a bit of an older one, but I do think- In this vein, going from talkies to, yeah. Yeah, it really set, it was like the, you know, the blueprint for this kind of story, especially because Babylon does kind of crib so much from that storyline of going from, like you were saying, from the silent films to the talkies and that rough adjustment um, in a bit harsher way. But I do think Singing in the Rain was one of the first movies about movies that I saw. We actually studied it in film school and that really showed me the magic of movie making. And I think I love the way that it goes about it with, you know, the musical aspects, but it's also very honest to how finicky stardom can be and how things can just change overnight and you know how you may not get proper credit for your contributions to the industry but there is an overwhelming I think optimism that runs through the film anyway and there's that romance that just leaves you feeling you know overwhelmed emotionally in a very positive way and I think the musical numbers and dance numbers are all just instantly unforgettable and it really it's it's stuck with me ever since it's one of my favorite musicals I think obviously Danny and Giselle love this so much because there's nods to it in La La Land too yes. so we would not yeah have these films today without singing in the rain so I do think you have to pay tribute to the original Oh, I completely agree. Um, 1952, one of the best musicals ever made, one of the best in this uh, particular genre that we're talking about, and so funny. Just this trio, Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds and dance number that Donald (laughs) O'Connor does, which is just iconic. So I'm going to go to another one, which is Early Days, also is one of my favorite movies ever. That is Sunset Boulevard, Mm -hmm. which is... 1950 so it's about the same time um billy wilder is an amazing piece of cinema it's about a deadbeat screenwriter um william holden who starts working for icon norma desmond played by gloria swanson and who asks him to rewrite her biopic i think it's supposed to be salome here you have cameos from buster keaton from eric von stroheim there's a category here i wanted to talk to you about this is sort of the cynical mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love Sunset Boulevard. I think it's one of the greatest scripts ever written. And I do agree it's nice to kind of have a balance of the films that are really gleefully optimistic and really idealistic about the industry. And then the films that show the truth of it sometimes, because I do think both exist. I don't think it's really one or the other ever fully. I think they really go in tandem with one another and the best films engage with both simultaneously. So, And I don't yeah, know what it says classic. about me, but I like whatever happened to Baby Jane, which is also some of the darker yeah. <laughs> aspects of Hollywood. I think LA Confidential, which is also yeah. the seedy side of, of, of 1950s LA mob scene and police. I mean, this is the sort of subgenre of the subgenre that I, 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 when I was thinking about our list yeah. we were going to do today, I was like, wow, I seem to really like that. That's why I'm saying I think Babylon will be for me. I know. And, and another film that was on my list that's kind of, you know, lightly associated with the overall Hollywood industry, but I think still fits, especially because it's been compared to Babylon um, with Boogie Nights. I love Boogie Nights, even though that's more, yeah. That's more the porn industry, but, you know, I think it still factors in with the industry overall, too. Oh, absolutely. And it, yes, yeah, it's so incredible. And I do think it's another film that really, like what Babylon's aiming to do, talks about how intoxicating, like, the rise of stardom can be mm-hmm. and how it all just happens instantly and you're kind of enveloped in it and before you know it, everything's crumbling down. And I'm, I'm really excited to see that structure play out in Babylon with the story it's telling because... When I saw Boogie Nights for the first time, it was, I loved it. I had seen it prior to seeing Goodfellas, which is also compared to, but I love rise and fall stories like that. I love 
those films, like I was saying earlier, that really show both sides and, you know, and kind of picking yourself up after everything's done and, you know, finding a new path for yourself in the industry or getting out of it entirely. And just that, how that's your choice, because everything is so uncertain all the time and you really only have your drive and your talent. And I think Boogie Nights gets at the heart of that theme very well. And just so many unforgettable performances. And I love Julianne more in that. She's so incredible. And Burt Reynolds, as we said. Yeah, just great film. No, this industry, who survives and who doesn't. And PTA is such a good example of, of one of these directors we were talking about earlier, who has all this knowledge and, and all mm-hmm. this LA knowledge. He was born there, walked those streets, studied these directors, worked with these directors. And you can see that in a movie like Boogie Night, even though it was quite early in his career. Yeah, it is crazy in hindsight to see how young he was as a filmmaker. It kind of is very Damien Chazelle-esque to be able to tackle like this very graphic epic and do it so well and, you know, have it really launch his career into, you know, greater heights. And yeah, it's it's very fascinating to, you know, have a retrospective of where PTA got to where he is today because Boogie Nights came so early on and just really established his voice. And it's been unforgettable ever since. Do you want to do another one from your list? Yes, um, I will put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on mine. I know we mentioned it earlier, but yeah, I do think it's interesting because I I remember this film came out, I think it was like my junior year of college, and I was solidifying my plans to come out to LA after I graduated and stuff right around the same time. So that whole fever dream and nostalgic trip of the movie really hit me in a really emotional and intimate place, especially the melancholic ending. And I think that's another film that's very honest, you know, like through Leonardo DiCaprio's character about how the winds can shift every single day in the industry and you're never on stable ground, but there's still so much joy and life and love to be found, even in, you know, in the darkest of circumstances as this film deals with some very tragic events. Um, But I really like the way that Tarantino also rewrites history to give somebody the ending that they can't get because life and the industry can be so cruel sometimes. And I think that was something that's really stuck with me ever since. And also in Margot Robbie's very subtle, but still stirring performance that I think ranks up there with her best still. And yeah, and we mentioned Brad Pitt earlier and obviously, you know. Yeah, both of them are in Babylon and in Once Upon a Time. Yeah, which I think is very interesting because they are some of our last movie stars today. So yeah, to have them in movies like this deal with you know stardom and the evolution of stardom and you know stardom falling off I think is a fascinating meta commentary that I also like to experience when I watch these films so all of that kind of adds up for a cinematic experience that I have not forgot yet I think one of the most honest but still hopeful films about movie making in Hollywood oh I I 100% agree yeah and I love that recently he said it was his favorite film that he's made and I do think he has so many classics I mean obviously Pulp Fiction and I'm a big fan of Jackie exactly yeah no he he's definitely made his mark but I think it is fascinating to hear him call it his favorite film because I do think it's one of his fullest and most emotional and open statements as an artist, especially as we were saying earlier, as these directors and writers do get older and they find themselves looking more within and what do they want to leave behind. And I really do feel like this film 
is what Quentin Tarantino wants to leave with us with all his messages about fame and Hollywood and the magic of art and cinema in general. And I think that really resonates and translates through when you're watching the film. And it's still one of my favorites to revisit because even aside from all that, it's just a great hangout film. I think there's so much, yeah, there's so much joy to be found in it. It's just so, it's an easy watch. It's really entertaining. It's immensely entertaining. The dialogue is so free and yeah, it's, it's a great, great time. Yeah, I mean, this is the other category, but Spielberg and his Fablemans, he was just saying that, you know, how important this film is sort of summarizing not only his family, but why his career is the way it is. Um, And he was saying that it's a movie not about metaphor, but about memory, Mm -hmm. to your point that all these directors are sort of looking back. Also in homage to not just the career and that they made money or success, but also that gave them a life, which Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in our generation, you know, we've gone through things and movies have saved us. And I think that the directors that do that in their movies, I think can resonate with a lot of us who feel that way. Yeah. And I think we've talked a lot about like those memoir movies, kind of like what Spielberg did this year and Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. And there are some people who are like, oh, like, why do we need to know about like all their history? Like this feels like it's more for them. And I do think the best of these memoir movies, kind of like those we've mentioned, have some sort of universality to them, where even though it is a very intimate story about their families and their identities specifically, there are themes that all of us can latch onto. And I think any artist can see themselves in the Fablemans and, you know, that conflict between art and family and, you know, being discounted and being, you know, discouraged from following your dreams and overcoming that anyway and finding your voice and grappling with the darker side of filmmaking and the industry. And I think these are all very weighty ideas that all of us can relate to in some way. So that's why I do think, yeah, there's significance to these stories, even if they are very specific life events to one person in particular. It is really interesting how certain films linger with us and you can all remember the moment you saw them and what you were going through at the time. I think that's the power to movies because we all come in a movie with a different perspective and a different memory. And I think a lot of these films, you know, get to that special attachment very well. Should I do one here? Yeah. I have a little subgenre of the subgenre of the subgenre just to make things. Um, and that's screenwriter movies, which I really like. Barton Fink, Coen Brothers. Hey, friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21 year hard rock executive turned best selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band, turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life. We've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information. I think it was from early 90s, maybe 91. It's set in in 1940s with John Turturro. He's a young um, New York playwright who's hired to write a script at a Hollywood studio. And you can just imagine the cynicism and conditions that he has to work in. And and then there's also adaptation, of course, Spike Jones with Charlie Kaufman, 
also a struggling screenwriter in total writer's block. I really liked Almodovar's Pain and Glory, um, where Antonio Banderas is also struggling with looking back at his career. Yeah, um, no, I I had adaptation on mine too. I think that's like, I think any screenwriter or aspiring screenwriter has watched that movie or has been told to watch that movie and it's just unforgettable. It's so well written. How do you feel about talking about Coen Brothers um, and, and Barton Fink? How did you feel about Hail Caesar? Which- yeah, that was one I had written down too in terms of one I think did not connect in terms of, you know, how successful these have been. And I actually liked Hail Caesar, but I do think, I think that that was a film that, it's very, it's very true to their style. It's very wacky and it is at times very cynical about some of the seedier sides of the industry, like we were saying earlier. But I, I think maybe we're more receptive to those messages now. And I think about the time when this came out, it was, I think it was 2016, which was a very turbulent year. <laughs> so I think sometimes we're more receptive to messages of cynicism or nihilism or just straight up honesty yeah Yeah. and I think at that time we were not really willing to kind of engage with some of the darker sides of the broader world and nowadays with all we've been through I think we're more willing to be very honest in our introspection so I think yeah I think it was a case of bad timing because I do think it's aged very well and I think it hits at the heart of a lot of things that we're still talking about today. Um, Why do you think Mank didn't connect very well? I think that was another film I do think COVID probably weighed on that because it's another example of kind of cynical industry introspection. Um, and I think COVID was naturally, you know, a very depressing time for many. And we kind of looked for more escapism or those melancholic movies like Nomadland and Minari that were still very emotional, but also kind of uplifting ultimately too. Um, and Mank was also very, quote unquote, inside baseball. It's very in depth about, you know, the inner workings of the industry and also its intersection with politics. And I think it kind of got away from some of the magic of movie making that a lot of people are drawn to with these sort of stories. Um, I, re- I did really like Mank, but I think it's because I also have been drawn to kind of the business and like, you know, machinations of the industry. And I like stories like that, but I think it's a very acquired particular taste. And even though it did fairly well with the Academy in terms of like nominations and it got two wins, I believe it's still not what people like to see specifically from these movies. They want the majesty. They don't want you know, some of the more cynicism and reality sometimes. I liked Mank too, but maybe this is an example of a really well done movie, but that is a little too inside baseball and a little too mm-hmm. for a certain audience. Do you have another one you want to mention? Yes, I think this one, it's a, it's a bit of a more recent one and it's not, it's like very narrowed in on one part of the industry. Um, and that's Dolomite is my name. Oh, and that was an yes. Eddie Murphy, yeah. Eddie Murphy comedy from 2019 about, you know, black film in like the 70s and really that side of the industry, which has been, I think, really criminally underexplored, especially in modern cinema. And I think it's easy to overlook all their contributions to cinema overall, because we, you know, have a very narrow perspective sometimes of classics and the people that made the movies what they are. And this was a film that really not only honored black contributions to cinema in the 60s and the 70s, but also felt like one of those films as well it was very comical and it was very honest about their struggles but also just such a joy to watch so I think the script to is... join the costumes yeah. and the dialogue so everything. incredible yeah. yeah it is it's one of the most fun films in the subgenre of sorts and I love seeing filmmakers who take 
a really unique approach with it, narrow in on one sphere of the industry, you know, that hasn't been given spotlight yet. And I think that that's sort of what the future should hold for the subgenres. We've seen all these very broad stories, but give us a bit more kind of like this or Boogie Nights about like a very narrow perspective on one side. Yeah, that's kind of been brushed aside. I came to think of Ed Wood, disaster artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I had Ed Wood written down too. I, it's so good. Such a great movie. How do you feel about comedy? It's like something like Tropic Thunder with Ben Stiller, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, even though that's a that's a fictional film, I think it, it did hint at a lot of what the industry is actually like. Um, mm -hmm. And I think comedy is sometimes the best way to do it because you can really lean into the absurdity of these real life situations that is sometimes not too far from the truth, like with uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, which has obviously been reevaluated, but I think still Yeah, he's in blackface and, and people... Yeah, there's a lot of honesty, I think, about kind of the narcissism of actors too and, you know, the lengths they'll go to in order to achieve this momentary acclaim or these accolades and that always gets me I think it's so funny especially with you know Tom Cruise's executive and yeah he <laughs> really let so go for that one that's so funny and it's so funny because it, it does seem so like over the top and absurd and then you hear about real Hollywood stories and you're like oh so this is kind of almost not too far from what actually happens in the business and I love that about it I love I love that it's honest but also so silly and it, it is really I think stood the test of time and is still so fun to watch. Go ahead if you have anything else. I think the last one I had on my list was The Artist, which I think is one of the most controversial Best Picture winners because it happened in a year that I think a lot of people weren't as engaged with. And it was also kind of feeling like a remake of Singing in the Rain a little bit. It kind of tackles the same subject matter that both that film and Babylon does about, you know, the transition from silent phones to the talkies. But I, I really like it. I think that this, I remember seeing it before I had seen too many silent films and it kind of showed me how magical they could still be because I was always like, oh, I don't know if I'd be into a black and white silent film. I don't know if the entertainment value would be there as it is with all these other modern movies I'm watching. And I thought it was really fun. I thought it was really sweet. And even though it is very sad, ultimately, um, about you know the main character struggle, of course, to adapt, which is a theme in all of these stories, I think I really love the romance and I love how you do find ways to find a new place for yourself in the industry. And that's all about the game. That's all it is. And it really, it's an inspiring story. Ultimately, I think the style is just superb and it really stands on its own despite being an homage to all these other silent films as well. And it's one I actually do stand up for in terms of the best picture discussion. I because love it, I think yeah. It, yeah. It's still so fun. Yeah. So when do you think we're going to have the generation that's going adapting from um, movies to internet and doing all these sentimental films about how difficult it was to adapt to the times when everyone was doing cinema and then had to be on Zoom. I know, I know. I'm interested. I think that'll be a millennial and Gen Z take on this subgenre. So I think with the, the next cinema decade paradiso or so. of the TikTok time. Yeah, which would be a very interesting take. Yeah. <laughs> Then we have the biopic. We were mentioning a bit about that. We loved Ed Wood and Dolomite and things like that. But Judy and Blonde are definitely praised for the lead actress. Blonde, I've already discussed, was for me an awful experience. But why do you think a movie like Judy didn't really resonate? I think that was... It, it's, it was a biopic that was very narrowed on, I think it was like one week or like one month of her life. And I think a lot of times people are drawn to biopics that 
are broader in their view, especially of an icon like Judy Garland. I think people wanted a bit more out of it. And like you said, the performance was rightly praised. Mm -hmm. I think that everybody walked away thinking that was very much the silver lining of the film. But I think it might have been too narrow in scope and too unambitious from a structural or thematic standpoint to really resonate in a larger way. Do you have any of those sort of more biopicy Hollywood on Hollywood films? That's one of your favorites? Um, I do think, I think the ones you mentioned earlier, those are the ones I had written down. I think, I think Ed Wood is an example of a film that did do this right, because I think it honors not only his life and kind of what Ed Wood brought to not just, you know, the B-movie world, but Hollywood overall. And I think it balances both, you know, that storytelling of what he was doing, but also how B-movies were evolving, how the public was perceiving B-movies, what went into making a B-movie. And you're left with this knowledge of both sides of things. Whereas, you know, in a film like Judy, it's very narrowed on like one specific circumstance in her life. And Ed Wood is very comprehensive and I think very emotionally and thematically involving in ways like films like that or not. And even The Disaster Artist too, like we were saying, that's very much specifically about one the making of one film but I think it overall becomes this ode to artists and dreamers who you know despite everybody telling them they're wrong there will be an audience for them why do you think that a star is born has resonated so much there's so many versions of some of the most incredible actors yeah I think like we were saying earlier that is a tale as old as time in the industry of someone who is so naturally gifted and talented but is chewed up and spit out by the system and it's such it is so unfortunate but that's just a really sad truth about Hollywood in general and I think that tale adapts and evolves over time because you know what's going on in the industry in the world and who's in power shifts so I think there are always new ways to tell that story um and especially like with the with the most recent adaptation stuff and what it was saying more about the modern music world I think is an interesting contribution and obviously like you said the acting is so incredible throughout but yeah because it just really does speak to the honesty of what Hollywood is still like and just arts industry overall and that reconciliation between being a creative and also being a business person, I think it will continue to resonate. And I imagine we'll get another one in our life. Yeah, too, I'm because, sure. Yeah. Next, who will, yeah. we'll have to take bets on who that next um, new artist yeah. will be to play that. But it's funny because it, it at the same time, as you were saying that things evolve all the time, this, this series of movies shows that everything stays the same in this industry, mm -hmm. how tough it is yeah. and how easily you're chewed up and spit out and um, what the price of fame and all those things they will always be there. I like that even though it is honest to that truth, it also gets at the heart of why we continue to dream and follow our dreams anyway, because of that rush and because of how gratifying it is to see your creative endeavors succeed and to feel, you know, that adoration and acc accolades from the industry. I think it really does find the magic in all the mess too, which is the secret sauce to all these movies. Yes, the magic. I want to mention one more one that was on my list and see what you think about. That's Mulholland Drive. David Lynch is also one of those directors that has such a rich history and knowledge of the industry, but does it in his own way. <laughs> and and this one is about Naomi Watts plays an aspiring actress who falls for a woman who's, she has amnesia, right? Um, yeah. But they're both yeah. really nostalgic about movies and, and, and Hollywood, and, and it becomes another one of these dark underbelly films only David Lynch can do. That film really gets 
at this idea that fame is a bit of a fever dream, especially as mm. there's just so much, like things really can just change on a dime for no reason. And I think that can be both an intoxicating and also terrifying experience. And I think that is the secret to why all of David Lynch's films are so involving because it is equally entrancing, but also, you know, just spine chilling like you're also you're terrified at the same time you can't you like don't want to follow it but you're drawn to it anyway and I think that's a perfect approach to telling a story about Hollywood because that is that is what the industry is like is that you you're aware of all the honest you know stark truths about what really happens and what your outcome may be but you're still lured to it anyway because that is the draw of fame and the draw of success and that is such a perfect theme for a director like him and a storyteller like him and I think it's executed perfectly in Mulholland Drive that was also on my list it's Mm -hmm. it's just unforgettable stylistically but also I think it goes about these very overtold themes in an original way yeah I love that that the fever dream that you're mentioning and it's so funny because I mean we've only seen trailers and and pictures from Babylon but it seems that if Babylon is as good as you and I hope um, it seems to have all these elements a fever dream the cynical part but also that magic that you're talking about the complete package let's see (laughs) I know yeah (laughs) we have to eat our words we'll have to talk again and see (laughs) what what we finally think when we've been able to see it oh I I just agree with what you just said about Babylon is I I think I'm really honestly appreciative that it is a three-hour kind of old Hollywood epic because if it does everything that I expect it to do and kind of what we've heard from early reactions or what we've seen from the trailers I I really hope it not only engages with the magic and also the mess like we were saying earlier of what the industry is like but then reminds us why people continued on after the shift anyway even though it was so devastating to so many what brought people back I think that's what I'm most interested to see is how he ties it all together over this very Mm -hmm. turbulent time in Hollywood history and I have total faith in him as a writer and a director and I imagine he can get that thematic through line all the way to the end and everyone said that it has an unforgettable ending so very excited to see it for myself yeah unforgettable endings we like that (laughs) (laughs) I had the player here at Robert Altman's, of course, and my screenwriter forgot to mention that, which I think is really good. But I'm putting mm-hmm. you on the spot here a bit. You haven't seen it. But what do you think the Oscar chances for Babylon are just from what you've gauged of reactions in industry? Do you think the actors are going to be up for nominations? Well, Chazelle? I do think that Margot Robbie will definitely still be in peak best actress contention. Um, I think... A lot of the responses, even the negative ones, have still admired what she's brought to it, even if she is very big and broad. I think that's a style that actually plays very well with the Academy and something that they will very much respond to. And I think her character's story of being one of the young aspiring actresses who is kind of caught in this shift and shuffle in the industry will resonate with many, like we said earlier. And overall, I do think the film will be a very big player in Best Picture too, because, you know, it is a very industry specific story made by a lot of people who are already awarded, who they know and love. And there's also 10 films in the Best Picture lineup. So I think there's room for some that may not be overall adored, but still have very passionate pockets of support, which is kind of the secret sauce to getting a Best Picture nomination these days. Um, And I think the text will be definitely appropriately honored and awarded because everyone's praised definitely Justin Hurwitz's score, who always knocks it out of the park. Um, And the, the costume design and the production design, everybody loves, you know, classic Hollywood recreations. 
the production and yeah. costume and everything yeah Damien Chazelle yeah I think um I do think there might be a world where he could be lost in the shuffle because it is a very competitive year in best director but I think a lot of the things that some of Babylon's detractors have said about the film about it being kind of overly ambitious or very big or very you know it's just very long and it tries to tackle a lot will actually be admired by the director's branch and also his peers because he is a former nominee he is a former winner and a lot of people really like that directorial style especially when it comes to stories like so this unique. so yeah I think it, it will be one of the most some of the most unforgettable direction of the year so he at least has that going for him it's one of the biggest films and I think that'll be hard to miss so I still think he's firmly up there in contention I'm not ready to say it's like for sure and yet because there's just still so much season left but I do I do have faith in it overall and I think people who are counting it out completely you know we we gotta see there's it's only November so <laughs> Very few women, the directors and, and writers here that have done this, at least the examples we have. I don't know if it's it's more a male subgenre or what why that is, but I'd like to see more women directors and writers tackle this Hollywood on Hollywood genre. I think that's one of the reasons maybe Blonde could have been done better if we would have seen um, a woman writer and director behind that but uh, that's another discussion yeah I think it would be very interesting to see a woman's perspective of Hollywood history because our place in Hollywood history history has evolved so much and I think has been obscured at times also when we retell these stories and I do think it kind of, you know, like we were saying earlier, all these men who are very knowledgeable of the industry and of right. Hollywood overall, I think they've had the bigger platforms and power for longer. So they're at that point where they kind of have all these resources at their disposal and also just so much clout to be able to assemble these really big like packages and tell these grand stories. But I think now that we're living through an era in which female filmmakers are more at the forefront of the industry and the overall discussion that hopefully we get more who are able to be nostalgic about their past and also honest about how they came up in the industry and what the industry has looked like for us. And I, I do think that now that we have more bargaining power um, in the art that gets told and the stories that get shared, that we hopefully will see that shift at least in this next decade or beyond. Pleasure was a really interesting yeah. film yeah. in talking about Boogie Nights and, and that type of thing. But the listeners, please send in if you have some good examples of movies that have been written and directed by women in this genre that you think are interesting. I'd love to hear that and talk about that. Zoe, this was so much fun. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on. I hope that you'll come back again. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You know, this is a topic I, I love talking about. I am a huge Hollywood history nerd, and I had such a good time, too. I would love to be back. Thank you. Tell the listeners where they can find you and particularly your new YouTube channel. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, so you can find me essentially everywhere um, at Zoe Rose Bryant. I would say use Twitter and Letterboxd most frequently. But yes, I do have a new YouTube channel too. There's a new video out today about Bones and All, um, my review of that film. So yeah, go follow me there. Go check that out. And thank you so much for having me on again. And hopefully we'll still be able to read and follow each other on Twitter. Who knows? That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Weirdness coming Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I love this discussion. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, Next Best Picture. 
Com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.